Witch Roll Podcast. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, 
with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, so today I'm back with another, I think it's our third edition of Roll On, where I, alongside my co-host, Adam Skolnick, journalist, writer, environmentalist, activist, talk about various topical issues of interest and answer listener questions. Today, I kick off the show with a few exciting announcements for you guys. Pretty pumped up about that. We share ruminations on everything from writer's block, cancel culture, to Kanye West, and alternative health. We dissect the varying political ideologies of the wellness community. We explore the ways in which people are so easily swayed by the vicissitudes of the YouTube algorithm, why we should all be on high alert when it comes to the media we consume. And then in the second part of the podcast, I answer some relatively philosophical audience questions on the subjects of finding purpose, how to better embrace mindfulness, maintaining goals, and how to navigate cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. I must say, I'm really enjoying this new format experiment. I hope you guys are as well. So without further ado, enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We're back with another episode of Roll On, our Ask Me Anything format where me and my hype man, Adam, Adam Skolnick, hey, hey. break down a couple topics. We take questions from the listeners. And the idea is just to be a little bit more contemporaneous and freeform with this show. So Adam, how's it going? It's going good, man. I've had, uh, it's been a crazy last couple of weeks. Mm. Yeah. Well, you moved. Moved. We moved in the same building to a slightly bigger place because, yeah. you know, my wife is eight months pregnant almost, or I guess seven right. months. And um, through the seventh, we're in the eighth month now. And so we moved to this place that is like so similar to the old place, but just like slightly different. It's like your mind You're is like, like in like the a same building, record. right? Yeah. yeah. So your mind is like a skipped record. Usually when you move, you want to move to a radically different place. It's mm-hmm. like easier to process. But in this case, it's like slightly different. So it was very, it's like a trick mirror. We're living in a trick mirror right now. Well, like a parallel universe a parallel, situation. We're living yeah. in a parallel universe. Well, you're here today. Here. We're going to break it down. Um, before we get into it, I did want to make a couple announcements, big announcements I'm very excited about. Um, I have been hard at work for the last several weeks trying to put the finishing touches on a new book. It's been a while since we put a book out, so super excited about it. It's called Voicing Change. And essentially, it's a beautiful coffee table art book that contains timeless wisdom from the podcast with layouts and excerpts from some of my favorite guests over the years, accompanied by beautiful photographs. And I'm so excited about it, super proud. How many interviews? Um, we're trying to figure out um, right now how many, like we we have, more, of course, like I can't put everybody in. Right. And this will probably be the first in what will be a number of volumes because we've kind of got this down and we could put one out 
potentially every year. So this is just to be considered like the first one. Um, and of course, no matter how well I try to curate it, I'm sure I'll leave somebody's favorite guest out <laughs> or whatever. Um, but right now, I think we have about 50 excerpts um, in there with some essays that a few people have contributed, and it's going to be great. We don't have an official release date yet, but we're looking at around um, Thanksgiving time, hopefully, depending okay. upon printers and all of that. So and you're self-publishing this one. We right? are self-publishing this one, yeah. Congrats, um, man. And it's looking really beautiful. Can't wait to share more about it. But this You've is been the first writing... time that I've said anything on the podcast about it, but that's what I've been basically spending most of my time doing lately. Yeah, you said you've been writing like... 10 hours a day or like hold up into the, well, in, in, in the office. Yeah. But the problem is that I spent the better part of the, the, the quarantine <laughs> being a complete dilettante <laughs> until the deadline was just so overwhelming that I was put into a situation where I had to drop everything that I was doing and only write. And for whatever reason, uh, I don't know what it is, man. Like it took that deadline and the fear of not having it done to get my ass in gear and get this thing finished. That's, that's what deadlines so, do, right? I, know. I wish I could be the person who just works on it two hours a day. But how long has but, it been since you've been like uh, writing that intensively? Like long time, a long time. Um, you know, the first book, the last book book that I did was Finding Ultra. It was right. years ago. Right. I rewrote it a couple of years ago, but still, you know, that wasn't like creating a book out of whole whole cloth. The cookbooks are are more like this project in that they're jigsaw puzzles where there's a lot of people involved. Like I have a whole team of people who are working on this. So there's only aspects of it that are the written word. A lot of it is design and layout and all the like and curating, you know, how we want it to be presented. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, I've done a fair amount of writing. Recently, cool. so I'm excited about it. Yeah, that I is exciting. Like back in the back in the writing mode for got, the first time in a long time. You got the muscle yeah. warmed up. Do you find that like as you've started getting back into it, that you're finally finding a flow, or that you find a flow, or is it always is it always hard? Like, how is that process for you? Well, what's interesting about that is I actually have have really had a hard time getting back into it mm. for whatever reason. Like, I hate the word you know writer's block, but for reasons unbeknownst to me, it has been quite a challenge to just put my butt in the chair and do the thing in a way that I haven't experienced before in my life. And I was starting to get concerned, like maybe I just am not into doing this anymore, or maybe I've lost my touch, or maybe I'm getting old. And I had a discussion on the podcast with a neuroscientist recently, this guy, Andrew Huberman, who's all about like how the brain works. And I laid this out for him and I was like, what is wrong with me? Because then once the deadline became real and I was able to like appreciate the gravity of the situation I'd created for myself <laughs> and started working on it, now it's all I can think about. Like everything else is a distraction. Hmm. And I don't want to do anything but do this. And it made me think like, why, you know, why am I wired in this way? Like perhaps yeah. that's part of my addictive nature. Because again, I'd like to be the person who just does it in a very balanced manner, but it's an immersive experience, you know. Yeah. As somebody who writes books all the time and is writing a book right now, yeah. when you're in, you're like all in and it becomes your entire universe. But I find it's always hard, you know, like I just finished uh, the, finally finished the first draft of this raw this raw draft, I call it, I don't mm. even call it the first draft, the raw draft of this manuscript of this, talking about- But it's last, a novel. It's a one. novel. It's like talk about imposter syndrome. 
I've had that the entire time. Like, uh-huh. you know, like, cause I, I did write a novel before and that's what got me an agent, but we didn't sell it. And, uh, but this time it's not even nothing about my life. It's not semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. like that one was. So it's, 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 it's challenged me in ways. And it was, I was also avoiding it. I always had these reasons why I shouldn't start it. You know, like, yeah. uh, I didn't have the research done. I didn't have time to do it because of this, that, the other thing. And then when Who quarantine came are, along, Jonathan Franzen, exactly. And then there's that. Well, I know I'm not Jonathan <laughs> Franzen. <laughs> Don't worry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so finally getting that done, but like each, almost every day, finally towards the end, once you get to the point, you can see the downhill to the finish line, it becomes a little easier, but like it it was hard almost every day. And what helped me was that, uh, Stephen King interview with, uh, in the New York times magazine, David Marchese, is it Marchez? Marchese? I don't know. know, He does these great interviews. I think he's the best interviewer in, in print media and he used to be at New York magazine. Now he's at the times magazine. And Stephen King was, he asked him, is, does it always, do, do you know when you have like a great book on your hands when you're writing? He goes, they always feel terrible. Yeah. And if that's Stephen King saying that. It's very comforting. It's very, it is very comforting. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to get Stephen Pressfield on the podcast. Oh. Have you read War of Art? Or no. Turning Pro? I have oh, not. Oh my goodness. Those are the manuals for unlocking all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should definitely check those I out. I think I need he's, to. He's the dude when it comes to that stuff. And he lives in Malibu. I've been going back and forth with him. So oh, really? Try to get oh, him, you'll get, get him. him on the show soon. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Um, the other the other announcement that I wanted to make is uh, that we're right now contemplating some version of a subscription service for the things that, that we do here. Um, and I put a survey up on the Facebook group page for the podcast. So for those of you who don't know, there's a Facebook group, Rich Roll Podcast. You can find it on on Facebook. I'll put a link in the show notes to that um, with a few questions because it's something that we're putting a lot of thought into. And if and how we do it is going to be very much dependent upon all of your feedback and input. I don't want to do anything that that isn't going to um, you know, satisfy the kind of things that the audience is looking for from me. So excited about the work that we're doing there. The idea would be that we would be able to offer some premium things uh, beyond just the, the podcast will always be free. And I'm always going to do the podcast the way that we're doing it. But what else can I um, do to be of service and contribute to this community? And how can I be uh, a more present communicative member of the community mm. as well, mm-hmm. um, which is where my head's at. So if you're Kind of like a remote in, retreat, like doing what you do in the retreat mode, but Yeah, I mean, it would be it like, people. how about a monthly Zoom call with everybody who's a subscriber? What about a bonus podcast episode every month? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And just taking everybody's temperature and pulse on, on what they would be interested in. So cool. excited about the work that we're doing there. And again, that's another thing where I'll keep you guys posted and more will be revealed. That Facebook group is cool. Like it's fun to see everybody interacting and yeah. connecting um, on their own terms, but with content inspired by your content. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. idea there is I wanted to make a place for the community to do its own thing outside of myself, like yeah. for it to, for those people to interact with each other and to be able to see that happening is really cool. Yeah. What's funny is after I had Doug Evans on the podcast, then it just became like a whole uh, uh, portal for people sharing about <laughs> sprouting. <laughs> 
and everybody was, you know, exchanging their tips and where they get their equipment mm-hmm. and what their sprouts look like. So I thought I would bring in some of my own sprouts. The funny thing about that is Doug got me doing it. I got these canisters, which you can see here. If you're watching this on YouTube, they're just basic glass. Can- I think I got everything from Sproutman, sproutman.com. They have a little uh, graded top on them. And I have now more sprouts than I can possibly do anything with. It, it, I literally had to stop sprouting because they started to overwhelm it's my fridge. <laughs> I was it's just too much. eating sprouts all day long. <laughs> Did Julie uh, evict you from the kitchen? No, she's <laughs> excited about it actually because I've taken an interest in some version of home economics for a change. <laughs> so she's very supportive, but I got a whole rack up in our kitchen and I've got a process. And yeah. I'm, it's very satisfying. Mm. Because Look, it's all, done. it's also, it's first of all, it's super easy. You basically rinse these things overnight and then you, or you soak them overnight and then you rinse them uh, like two or three times a day for a couple of days and they just do their thing. And these are lentils? So these are, yeah, th- those are lentils yeah. here. This one's like a mix. I got these like containers that just have pop lids on them and I put them in the fridge. And weight loss tip Peas. for anybody out there who's looking to drop a few p- pounds. Doug told me that he basically just eats sprouts all day. Mm. I was like, how is that possible? Like, yeah. don't you, aren't you starving? Like, aren't you, you know, like, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll try that. So for the past couple of weeks, like throughout the day, I'll just munch on sprouts as a snack. And they're actually incredibly filling. Hmm. You can only eat so many before right. you max out. And my gut definitely had to adjust. It took a little bit of time. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Now I'm pretty adjusted and it's become <laughs> habitual. Like I'll just eat sprouts throughout the day. Yeah. And it really does modulate my appetite um, and I'll eat a normal dinner, but there's been days where I'll just eat sprouts during the day and then I'll eat dinner and I've been fine. So you are like going in the full transition to bunny. I feel like it, yeah. <laughs> All you do is eat this sprouts high fiber and then diet. run run through the hills. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I'm enjoying it though. So That's you gotta, you gotta get on it, it's I'm, cool. You know, April really wants to, when you're pregnant, you can't eat sprouts. Oh, and you I'm can't? Not exactly I didn't know sure that. Why, but, really? Um, I'm sure it's in one of the baby books I've avoided mm. reading so far, but- um, All different kinds of sprouts? Yeah, they say stay away from sprouts, um, but that might be sprouts you buy in the kit, in the in the store because E. coli is somehow more prevalent uh, in sprouts. So I think if you make it yourself, maybe that's not as much of an issue. I think the fear, I don't know, but, but I suspect the fear is that, you know, they can go bad. And so yeah. if you eat a bad patch, that could be problematic or dangerous. Yeah, but I, so, I don't know that there would be anything in in sprouts that haven't like turned that would be unhealthy for a pregnant person. But I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to me. No, don't worry. We're we're sticking to the baby books. We've got yeah, a okay. um, where you just we're installing blinds in the new place, and they can't you can't have the cords. It's right. got to be cordless, um, which has elevated everything price wise about two x. Uh-huh. Um, because and and yesterday we were talking about it. I'm like, well, maybe we could just go with cords. And she's like. I'm like, where does it say that we shouldn't have cords? She goes, literally every baby book. Oh, really? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh so only one month to go. <laughs> one that. month until. Well, well, two. So September 10th. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up quick. I think it's going to be September 11th because mm. I'm December 7th. Yeah. So I think we're going to be the tragic holiday mm. boys. We'll see. Yeah. More will be revealed. <laughs> Stay All tuned. right. Well, what do you want to talk Your about? I, I, I thought we, sh- we could talk a little bit about, well, let me set the stage. So as many of you know, the last uh, couple months of the podcast have been pretty heavy. I've done my best to tackle 
some very serious subjects, mm. everything from racial injustice to systemic racism, food injustice, you know, really the most pertinent, important topics of our time that we're grappling with. Uh, we have a bit of a respite this week. I put up Kevin Smith and his daughter, Harley Quinn Smith. It's super delightful, fun conversation. Um, but I've been spending a lot of time kind of reflecting on, um, you know, how to best communicate and advocate in this space um, with the understanding that it's so fraught. And because we put these podcasts up on YouTube, you, know, you see the comments and mm. you get a sense of what's landing for people and what isn't. Not that YouTube comments are, are a reliable source no. of, of, of constructive <laughs> feedback, um, but I do know that for a lot of people, it's been challenging in terms of how to communicate publicly in the most effective way around these issues. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fear from certain people who don't wanna get it wrong, don't wanna misstep, don't wanna offend. And the result of that has been to retreat from the conversation altogether. Which doesn't help. No. Right, and you've decided obviously against that from the beginning, you were very clear that you wanted to address the situation from mm -hmm. the beginning. Um, what do you think is the in inspiration to retreat from it? What are people, besides just fear, is it, is, it, is it the idea of being canceled or like somehow being called out? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of calling out right mm -hmm. now. There is a robust cancel culture afoot. And I think people are terrified mm -hmm. of getting a taste of what that experience might be. And look, it's complicated because on the one hand, the, 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 you know, the public forum is holding people accountable for things that need to be addressed yeah. and spoken about. And in many ways, that culture has led to some of the changes that we're seeing right now. At the same time, I think it's important to provide people a little bit of breathing room around this who might get it wrong initially, you know, Bill Maher talked about this in his closing monologue a couple of weeks ago, uh, that, you know, we have to encourage people to participate in this rather than discourage them from raising their hand and saying, you know, I want to be part of this as well, but I'm afraid. Mm. I, I mean, I think, uh, I agree with you. I mean, there, there, there's, there is a danger of, you don't want to become the new McCarthyists, right? Like where, all of a sudden, you can't, uh, if you say the wrong thing, you're branded a certain way and, and you're out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because that plays into uh, people who want to keep things the same as they've always been. It plays right into their hands. Right. Because now you've elevated them as the people who are more in touch with free speech, which is, you know, definitely an element of this, of this country that's been, you know, that's of all the things. I mean, I'm... Of all the things America has been good at, uh, free speech is one of them. I mean, it really is. So, so it's probably at the top of that list. So it's 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 core to the culture here. Mm -hmm. um, that's why people like coming here. You know, look what's happening in Hong Kong right now, where all, overnight that right. just gets the light switches turned off. Um, so when you cancel people to to the degree, you know, based on there's some things that happen that that are legit. But when you just cancel people because they said something the wrong way or all of a sudden, it, it, you know, things and, and, and their whole career is, is now in jeopardy, um, especially if it's really a misinterpretation or a matter of perception, uh, 
that is dangerous because you are playing, you are mm-hmm. pushing people away that could be a contributor to making things better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's more nuanced than just cancel culture. It's yeah. just being reprimanded publicly. You know, the way Bill Maher put it, he's like, you want to be a good ally, but not too good or you're a white savior. You want to use your voice, but you shouldn't make it about yourself. Um, you know, the rules are complicated and it's almost like you have to thread a needle or mm. walk this tightrope. Mm. And I think a lot of people are just like, I, I, I don't like, I'm. no matter what I do, it's not going to be right. And so I'm just going to opt out. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, like, there is the argument to be made that we wouldn't be where we are in terms of confronting racism finally and more definitively if it wasn't for the orthodoxy of the left, right? So now the fact that there are hard lines of of how to behave, which are kind of anathema to people of my mm-hmm. generation, Gen X, which was like, we, we wanted to rebel against those rules all the time. Like w- when you were supposed to behave a certain way, we wanted to behave a different way. Right. Um, but now- uh, this generation is all about behaving the right way and signaling the right things and, and communicating the right way. And and so that has gotten us to this point where we're actually making some progress or it seems to we it seems to me that we're making some progress because because people are 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 holding politicians feet to the fire and and other public People, you know, people who have a public platform, their feet are being held to the fire, or they're they're uh, stepping in line because they want to. Whatever it is, there is a line, mm-hmm. and people are lined up to do it. Uh, and so, it could be this orthodoxy, which can be construed as as somewhat dangerous if if it continues going forward, like six moves down the the road. Uh, for now has put us in an unprecedented position in terms of tackling racism in America and confronting it head on. So it's, there's that, but then there's also the thing is, well, if you continue to narrow it, then, then are we going to make the real progress we want to make or should we widen it and allow everybody to be a part of it? Right. Well, the strictures have become so constrained, you know, and as a fellow Gen Xer, (laughs) you know, it is true. It was all about individualism. Uh, a rebellion against control systems, but the locus of that control was always governments and organizations, whereas now the control mechanism is diffused across the population. Mm. And to the extent that there is value in wokeness because it's waking up this awareness inside of ourselves about grander problems that exist outside of our, you know, individualistic dispositions, at the same time, the extremist aspect of wokeness, I think, is is very toxic. And the downstream implications of that type of policing of speech and behavior is not in service to the best interests of liberalism. Right. Because liberalism is this ideal that we want to aspire to, where it can be people of different thoughts and beliefs come together to create a society that is uh, mostly free and open, right? Right, right. And when, and, and, and when we're, we're being regimented in, in such a way, that openness is called into question. Yeah. You know, and, and I think- By it the also, people who, are, who want to keep the status quo. Well, also the extreme aspects of wokeness also just further entrench and solidify the 
the conservative point of view yes. because people look at that and just think these people are out of their minds. It's absolutely true. Also, it now like the new punk rock thing to do is to be conservative. So there's that aspect too. Like if you won't really want to piss people off, <laughs> that's right, you know that's what right. I mean? Yeah. You become a, you know, that's true. Like right. young people who want to piss people off and be the radical. Mm-hmm. Now you used to, like when we were growing up, no way. We wouldn't be Republicans doing that. Right. Now it is Republicans doing that. Beyond that, the true heterodoxy is happening online. That's not a part of the mainstream media or news culture um, that, we're, that we're seeing on cable news, right? Yeah. The ideas that are trying to address these from a perspective of greater nuance and understanding are happening in long-form conversations you know, across podcasting and YouTube. Yeah, agreed. But it's it's almost like both are happening. You know that that that's, that gets us into this other kind of place. I mean, I want before we go in there, but before we get into kind of the wellness and and rabbit hole and all mm-hmm. of that, uh, kind of to get us there. When I think about when I think of the cancel culture and sh- public shaming and and the orthodoxy of speech and 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 political thought on the left and the right, I think of kind of the Balinese philosophy of, of Tri Hitta Karana, which is all about cultivating harmony with yourself and with God or the universe, however you wanna um, describe it. Harmony among people within the community and the family and harmony with nature and the environment. That's the, what it was all built around because it was this uh, culture that came up on this small island, its, its own kind of Hindu culture that developed with animist beliefs and Hinduism. Mm. And, the, and this culture developed because all we have is this island. So we need to make sure it all works, you know, like the way we channel the water to the rice fields, everything, the way we interact with one another. Um, we are now in this place where we want to eradicate and destroy. And I understand why, you know, like it's because people have felt that they're trying, that their lives are in jeopardy, that they're being yeah. eradicated or not heard or and destroy and attempted to destroy. Um, but shouldn't the aspiration be harmony? You know, like, and, and within Balinese worldview is this idea that you can't, you can't destroy the, the dark thing, the evil thing. Um, it can never be destroyed. The best you can do is cultivate enough light that you have a balance and that's what you can do. And that's not just within society, that's within yourself because we all have kind of these dark thoughts, right? I mean, that's just part of the human condition. And so they do it through meditation and through rituals that are performed on a daily basis and then within a village and, and within the island wide. Um, but we, it's, it's something that I think about, I was been thinking about that this week, it, that would be a good place to get to. If we can consider how do we cultivate harmony with ourselves, within the community and and with nature, because that should that should be the driving force. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, there will be no place for people like the current president or you know alt right figures. There will be no place for them. They'll exist because you can't eliminate that. But you can't. They won't have the oxygen. But when you do this other thing where you try to eradicate them, they become like demagogues. They become bigger. Yeah, not smaller. Well, I think the problem with, I mean, it's a beautiful ideal. I think the, the, what makes translating that notion or, or laying that template upon America as we see it right now is the fact that we, we, we have systems that need to be uh, reformed yeah. before that's functional because yeah. that idea, uh, as, as beautiful as it is, gets conflated with all lives matter or you know, I don't see color. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like it's like, oh, harmony. And I think in order to get to that place, first we need to drill down on the, 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 the systemic aspect of these problems and what's driving you know, the, the kind of unconscious forces that are creating problems that lead to the disenfranchisement of people of color, right? And until we do that, we can't deal with the harmony part. No, so I mean, that's, can, that, that's the two you know sides. I mean? Like, so do you want the orthodoxy? Because that'll get which which is the place that gets us there, though. Like, the orthodoxy has got us this place where we're confronting it head on. Is that going to be enough to actually get to the systemic root of it, or do you need to build consensus? And if you need to build consensus, then you can't do that with just the orthodoxy, right? Right. So you need to have. Yeah. Like, now I understand what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, now, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, consensus is the way forward, right? right? But right now we're creating demagogues. Yeah, yeah. And, and my and fear polarizing. is that my fear is that this polarization is only going to escalate, and that really is driving a rift that makes this problem all the more difficult to solve. Right, and 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 if you come across, I mean, I, I'm I'm with the conversation of of systemic change, and we need to get there. <laughs> but uh, if we if if what drives us towards getting there is this idea of weak. We have to live in harmony because we do li all live here. Like and we, we need a unity of purpose. We need a unity of purpose. This. So it's not so much trying to culturally appropriate the Balinese worldview and put it here. It's this uh, guiding light, kind of you. like this idea that that there is something to be learned from all these different cultures that have mm -hmm. cultivated something that does seem to work for people and for community. Yeah. There's, I mean, not that it's an ideal place, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's something to think about, like a philosophy to think about and how can that be applied here? Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little yeah. bit, I wanted to talk about how all of these ideas um, impact the wellness and alternative health community. Because one of the things that I've noticed that I think is super interesting is the way in which the wellness community itself has become, or a certain aspect of it has become radicalized or prone to more conspiracy-oriented ideas. Yes. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about why that is like there's a strange Venn diagram when you look at the wellness community and how it overlaps with certain political ideologies. I used to think that these things lived in separate universes, mm -hmm. but now everything is political mm -hmm. and recent events have made that truth all the more so. And in thinking about it, the conclusion that I'm that I'm arriving at is that I think I think at its origins, wellness, wellness, the wellness movement, if there is such a thing, grew out of the roots of alternative health mm -hmm. ideologies. And those notions are the result of people taking, attempting to take better control of their own health trajectories and also a healthy distrust of the medical establishment. Like, right. Don't just you know go to your doctor and get a prescription. Like here are some other things that you could potentially do that might make you a healthier human being. And over time, I think that bred a healthy distrust of certain institutions that perhaps don't have the best interests of right. individuals and the patients. And I think that's good. And now that seems to have metastasized in ways that are potentially unhealthy. Yeah, it's like embedded within uh, this 
kind of wellness community that is is becoming more and more skeptical of things, especially with this pandemic and and the CDC and all you know that that kind of thing that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. The wellness is that what you're getting at? The, the fact that online there is uh, a, a healthy portion of the wellness community that is is uh, basically doesn't believe the coronavirus stats doesn't mm-hmm. believe that it's as dangerous or yeah i mean de- we, yeah. i don't want to go down some you know crazy rabbit hole about conspiracy x y or z because yeah. that's not the purpose of why i brought this up but i think in general yes like the, there's a there's a receptivity to potentially wrong-headed ideas right now among the wellness community that i think is new and different and something to be aware of i think that it comes it's because it's because they've been you know all of this stuff that we are seeing now fake news whether it be from the health side or just general fake political news or whatever it is that only works because there was a period of time when we were lied to and Mm -hmm. and blatantly misled by the fbi by government institutions by um dow chemical Whatever it is, I don't know if you saw the movie Dark Waters mm-hmm. about the whole Teflon situation with du- I think it was Dupont actually, um, that Mark Ruffalo movie. I haven't seen it yet, yeah, but yeah. I'm familiar with the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, there is this root that that is kind of toxic was toxic to people. Yeah, and there's a healthy distrust right. that comes with that, right. whether it's a chemical company or a pharmaceutical company or an oil company. And and so this is all a result of that, you know, like in the 50s when Village Voice was founded and then all these alt weeklies in the 60s kind of – which was heavily tied in with wellness stuff. Some of them were, were you know, very much connected, uh, kind of – they they popped up all across the country, these alt weeklies mm-hmm. and became a movement. And that was because the mainstream media wasn't to be trusted. They were kind of spinning the party line. That's not – you know, so that that hasn't changed. That that distrust of these institutions never left. Now it's just changed shape and form, and into a much more powerful force, which yeah. is is uh, which is digital media and social media. Yeah, it is weird that everything is political now. Yeah, there used to be politics and everything else, but now there's nothing that isn't part and parcel of a political discussion. It's it is weird, and I don't know whether that's good or bad, but. I feel like it's not bringing us together. No. I think it's serving to really create distance between ourselves and our fellow man. It's dissonant. Yeah. <laughs> no question. And I don't know what the way forward is. I'm a free speech proponent. Yeah. But I think there's also um, a responsibility that comes with having a platform. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what are the kind of conversations I wanna have? Who are the kind of people that I want sitting across from me? And it's not just anybody. Like mm-hmm. I put thought into that because people are paying attention. They're listening, they're watching. And when I see others shirk that responsibility for the sake of views or clicks, um, I think that that, that that is irresponsible mm-hmm. right now, especially in a time that's so fraught. My hope is that everybody would be mindful of the types of conversations they're having. And I don't think it's enough to just say, well, I'm just, I'm just having a conversation with somebody. It doesn't mean that I agree with them. Of course, I've done hundreds of interviews. I'm not gonna agree with everything that the person sitting across from me says. There's gonna be healthy disagreement, but I think that's different. That's entirely different from having somebody on who's coming from a uh, 
you know, a perspective that might get a lot of attention, but is potentially harmful, especially in a moment where lives are truly at stake. Yeah. And you're in charge of your platform and you can make those decisions. And, um, but what happens when those are, when it's more systemic than that, when it's an AI that is teeing up video after video to people? Right. Like, well, well, that's definitely what's happening. Right. So if, if you're one of the people that is, that cares about their platform for your own personal, you know, because you have a brand to protect mm-hmm. and you have, uh, and you have your own motivations for that, which are, uh, personal, but also from a perspective of running your operation. Um, but when other people who just want the clicks because it's easier money, uh, more listeners, that kind of thing, then they become part of a pile that an algorithm or an AI right. kind of starts queuing up like its own DJ, you know, like like that's a different thing entirely, you know. Right, then which, which really brings us to the next thing yeah. that we wanted to yeah. talk about, yeah. which, uh, which is this incredible podcast series that the New York Times put out called Rabbit Hole. Mm-hmm. And I think to preface that conversation, um, I would say that we all want to believe that we are not only rational, sentient actors, but that we're not that manipulatable, right? right? Yeah. And when you listen to this series, you realize just how uh, inaccurate that actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it speaks specifically and directly to the statement that you just said. So Adam and I talked, and we thought, wouldn't it be fun on the show to do a little bit of, um, you know, show and tell? I brought the sprouts, but also share a few things that that we've been enjoying. And the first thing that came to my mind was this podcast series because it had. I thought it was superbly done, and speaks to exactly what we've been talking about, which I think is a really important issue right now. The manner in which people are so easily um, swayed by the vicissitudes of the YouTube algorithm. Yeah. You just I listened to this like a couple months ago, so it's not as fresh in my mind as it is for you because you yeah. just listened to it, right? I just listened to it. Um well Kevin Ruse is the host and the reporter behind it. You know, he's one of New York Times best tech reporters. Um and he covers Facebook and social media relentlessly mm-hmm. and, and really has illuminated many things for me before I started listening to this uh, podcast, but mostly I've been watching his posts. Like he does either daily or weekly posts of the most, uh, uh, the most viewed. Most shared things most on shared Facebook. Most shared things on yes. Facebook. And, and nine out of 10 of them are really conservative uh, right. articles. And one is like an Occupy Democrats article. So it's very political. It just shows you how stark and political Facebook truly is. And he kind of raised that for me a while ago with his reporting. This is really interesting because it, it shows you, you know, when he interviews the CEO of YouTube and other people involved, it's almost like they're surprised. Like they've unleashed this AI, which is the algorithm, which operates on its own. And it queues up video after video for people. Like mm-hmm. it's, the, the podcast opens, if you haven't heard it, it opens with someone who has been kind of down the rabbit hole. I forget his name, but he starts he starts watching uh, Joe Rogan, which leads to uh, Sebastian Melano, I think is his name. Uh, no, Stefan 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 Molnew, Molnew. I think is his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it basically tracks this one young man's trajectory yeah. from an average dude 
and how he becomes over time radicalized by virtue of YouTube and then ultimately how he finds his way out of that rabbit hole. Also by virtue of YouTube. Yeah, and so. they, they track, they go through his entire watch history yes, and yes. they look at all the videos that were suggested to him and you can see this like path yes. that this guy takes from one video to the next, to the next, to the next, how it, it, it walks him through this process of ideation mm -hmm. where he slowly becomes immersed in ideas that are not his own, yep. that he didn't necessarily choose. And by virtue of that suggested column on the right-hand side of YouTube, he ends up watching and how incredibly influential all of that became for that young man. Because they spend hours, and he spent hours mm -hmm. watching yeah. watching this stuff. And that's the other thing is you, you keep hearing and there's, at the end of it, there's a story about Pizzagate and um, an older uh, YouTube uh, addict, I guess you could call it, or a, or devotee mm -hmm. who literally spent was going through a hard time in her life, and basically YouTube was the one comfort she had, and she would just watch hours of it in a row. And she started with Elizabeth Warren's speeches, right? And ended right. up in that's the QAnon right. yeah. territory. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. It, it shows you. So a couple of things yeah. take away from me is like I'm thinking. I'd like to see a study on AI and the YouTube algorithm and what kind of hormones are going through the body. Like I want, I want some scientist, mad media scientist to like put someone in the UCLA, like Neiman lab, like uh -huh. put, put electrodes on their bodies and literally find out what hormones are being secreted in the person by this AI. Well, there are some interesting studies that are being done right now. There's yeah. a guy called Tristan Harris, who I believe is a former Google executive, if memory serves me, who started now a foundation that's that's looking at that very thing. Is I don't that know right? what it, what kind of research specifically they're doing, but there are very smart people who are paying attention to this. Because it really is like getting played. Like the, who's the real tool now? Like who's getting played? Right. right? And the, the the irony in that, of course, is that the messaging is all about how you need to sort of take the red pill and emerge from being played. Yes. But in turn, you are actually yourself playing into something else entirely. It, it's, this, it's this interesting kind of dichotomy looking on the left where it used to be like Twitter was this place where liberal rage went to live and thrive mm -hmm. and um, progressives kind of had their say, but really everyone wondered, well, what are you really doing? You're just tweeting. And YouTube, it's like these would be quote researchers. They really think of themselves as researchers. Like in Florida, that meeting over the masks, did you see that? Where like no. a bunch of angry people came up and were, were chastising the city council saying, I won't wear your mask, this mask is gonna kill me. Like all sorts of crazy right. shit. And they describe themselves, I've done my research. The research is watching YouTube videos. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. not fucking around here. Like, like that's, that, like, that's right. what they think research is, uh -huh. like watching YouTube videos. Like you hear right. that, it's like, I mean, that is, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> you didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> People I think of themselves that. as researchers. No, you're a I did watcher. see the woman who, who, uh, went into Target and pulled all the masks off that they were selling and threw them all on the floor and yeah. got angry. It wasn't she wasn't mad that she was being forced to wear a mask. She was mad that Target was selling masks because and this is the repressed rage that so many people are feeling right now. That has nothing to do with masks no. and it has everything to do with something else deeper. What do you think it has to do with? 
Because I was talking about this with April, I, like 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 to have a society that's reacting this way to the pandemic and and and, and needs YouTube in this manner and, and and is craving this kind of information, it it, it po- points to kind of a rot at the core, doesn't it? I think it's disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement, and powerlessness. Like if you, what what would motivate you to go into a Target and like knock down a display case of products on it, unless something was fundamentally broken inside of you. And I think people feel like they don't have a voice and their lives are neutered in such a way that um, that they're underexpressed, mm-hmm. I guess is a way to put it, right? They may have perfectly fine jobs and you know are able to pay their bills and whatnot, but there's a deep-seated sense of dissatisfaction or a lack of agency, I think. Alienation. That is at a low boil, and so you can continue to live your life and it seems manageable and not at some kind of acute crisis level, but it's just beneath the surface. And all it takes is something like this that gives them permission to express it. So it's like a man versus machine feeling. Like you feel like you're being ground up by the machine, by the way life is, all the structures are kind of being put upon you. And then ironically, your salvation is diving into this AI machine. And, right. and what a trip that is. I mean, but I agree with you. Like there is, a, there is something where people are deeply unsatisfied I feel like it's an alienation. Do you feel like it's more exacerbated with the with quarantine that it's actually becoming easier to see? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the witch's brew of quarantine and all of the political unrest. Like it's all of these things are combining to create a very unique situation in which this repressed rage is finding it, you know, it's finding its expression in these unhealthy ways. It's a trip. I mean, yeah. it, like the 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 idea with coronavirus and how some people's answer don't wear masks. We we should go for herd immunity, and it'll be interesting to see when there is a vaccine how many of these people who claim they want herd immunity <laughs> will line up we'll for see. a shot of herd immunity. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> the other thing about rabbit hole that's fascinating is it, it's not just about this young man and his journey through the YouTube algorithm. Yeah. It then looks at the origins of QAnon and yeah. you hear testimony from these, you know, QAnon people and how much they loved it started out as like this community for what sounded like people who were lonely mm-hmm. and they really enjoyed chatting with each it's other. It's exactly what you're talking about. And that there's something healthy about that, right. but of course it's all, you know, premised upon this QAnon and who is QAnon? Do we know? know. We Do we know. know who Q is? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but how that then metastasized into something unhealthy. Right. But the origins of that were people getting together who who were able to chat with each other online, you know, on Reddit, I guess. Well, yeah, but they were chatting with each other about how fucked up the you know the system yeah. was. Well, right? that goes back to the disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. right? The 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 lack of agency, the feeling that you don't have power over your life, and when you can point your finger at something else outside of yourself and say that's why, and you can rally a lot of emotional support around that, that becomes a very potent and powerful force. It, it's interesting because. The two people that they the, the, that they profiled 
uh, first the YouTube algorithm with the, 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 the younger guy in West Virginia who was living at his grandparents mm -hmm. and who became a YouTuber himself. Right. And then the, the woman who was in the hospitality industry and she lost everything in the financial crisis and then had her home destroyed in uh, Hurricane Irma and she got into the QAnon rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. They both represent kind of parallel to the opioid epidemic. It's It's hitting like... It is hitting disproportionately white communities where there is uh, this this kind of storm of disempowerment coming through. Mm -hmm. Like a guy coming out of college who's or like dropped out of college, couldn't figure out what he was wanting to do, um, didn't really have a lot of opportunity living in his grandma's house. This woman who um, had hit a couple of, of brick walls in, financially and is now living at some friend's house with nothing to do and no job. Uh, it's it's those are the people that are, are heading there. So there mm -hmm. is, I wonder what you think that if there is from an addiction standpoint, do you see parallels um, drive, you know, dr you know, this connection that you're talking about that they're going for, it's around a very specific thing that they're kind of tapping into. Well, certainly, you know, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but I think what is going on is there is, once you stumble upon an idea that connects with you, like you see this person and they feel like they're speaking to you directly and they're telling you about your problems and they're offering a solution, right? That's very intoxicating. Mm. And then you can click on another video and this person's gonna tell you even more. Something is going on biochemically in your brain. And as you begin to calcify around these ideas, then it becomes a quest for confirmation bias. You're gonna click on more and more videos that are going to affirm and entrench that perspective. And that's not a left or right thing. This no. is happening on both polarities of both the political sides. spectrum. Yeah. And there's like a, something happening in these videos that is very extreme. There's like the more extreme you get, the more outlandish it gets, the bigger it gets. Like look at PewDiePie, right? Like right. he, this 130, that, that's in the middle they of- They go through the whole thing with him. Yeah. yeah. And his growth and how he's got a hundred million something subscribers. I mean, who's really the alternative media now? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It, that still gets pegged as alternative media. And yet that person flicks on a video camera and is reaching way more people than any television show. It's the New York crazy. Times has 4 million subscribers. Right. He's got 130 million. Uh, Joe Rogan's it's got 100 million, doesn't he? Well, that's what's so interesting. Yeah. Like you look at Rogan, and I've said this many times before, but for a lot of people, especially young men, he's the most important media figure in their life. No doubt about right? it. 100%. Yeah. Incredibly influential and powerful. And despite a couple articles about him and his show and his sort of universe of, of people that he likes to have on. In the New York Times, The Atlantic, there's been a couple pieces about it. He doesn't, it doesn't come up in mainstream media. It's as if it doesn't exist. And it's yet weird. his, what he's doing is reaching way more people than those Sunday morning political, you know, batshit political shows where everyone's yelling at each other. But, you know, it's, it's, as, as ignorant as I was of PewDiePie's fame, like I, I heard of him, but I didn't realize how big he was and of, 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 of you know, how, how many, like how mainstream actually this YouTube stuff is, like it is very mainstream. Um, 
I did know about Rogan and how dominant he was because obviously with the David Goggins book, my experience mm-hmm. and knowing how what a dominant force he was. But when uh, Bernie Sanders went on there, he was killed on Twitter on the left for like going on Joe Rogan's show, right, which I thought which was- I thought that was insane. That was insane because if you know anything, you know that's the perfect place for right. him to go. You know, like- If uh, you want to actually- If you want to win- Recruit people <laughs> who are potentially Trump supporters to switch sides- you get Joe Rogan to endorse your candidate. Yes. That was the greatest thing that ever happened. And the fact that the left railed against that, I think shines a light on, it really elucidates the systemic problems with the left at the moment. Also the lack of understanding of who's actually in charge, who's powerful in media right now. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lack of understanding. Like my lack of understanding was not realizing, uh, you know, Pie and all this, this crazy, you know, QAnon and all. I, I, did, I really, until I listened to this, I didn't really fully understand the depth of it. I just happen to know about, I know about Rogan, uh-huh. but like, there's a whole bunch of people that don't realize it. I remember having debates with it on Twitter. Where people are trashing Bernie for going on Rogan. I'm like, no, that, like that's the best place to go. Right. Like, yeah. like that's that makes perfect sense. I can to tell go you, I've been a guest on Joe's show twice. Both of those experiences were. Fantastic. I get along with Joe perfectly fine. I have a huge amount of respect for what he does. And when you go on his show, and look, the last time I did it, it was quite a long time ago. It's grown significantly since then, but it's insane. Like the the spike in people that are suddenly paying attention to you is bananas. Unlike any other media I've ever done a hundredfold. And I would suspect that David Goggins would tell you the same. Oh, I mean, yeah, he's one no of the most doubt. popular guests that Joe's ever had on. No doubt, no doubt. Like his his numbers spiked significantly after that Joe Rogan opinion. Nothing yeah. has even touched it. Yeah, nothing even comes close. No. It's incredibly powerful. And people now I think are more increasingly aware that at least it exists, but I still think they're woefully underappreciating the heft and the power that that program holds at the moment. Agreed. And it's and the good thing about his program, which doesn't get, I don't think, a lot of mainstream ink either, is that he's actually very smart. Yeah. So it's, he's the kind of person you actually want to and have he's, in he's, that position. And he's very cagey in that he will say, look, I'm just a dummy, don't listen right. to me. But he's very good at what he does. And yeah. I can tell you that as somebody who sat across from him for six hours talking to him. There you go. So. Um, did you want to get into how the where the QAnon went, or do you want to get into cosmic ping pong, or not really? No, let's. I think we're we'll do we'll save that for another time. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah, we have one more. Could we, monopolize hours of conversation, <laughs> and I don't want to do that, you know, lightly. No, yeah, but you could take a highlight, and then all of a sudden that could be in the QAnon well, think, queue on YouTube, and think of all the all the here, viewers you'll get. I'm not doing this for <laughs> clickbait, man. I think. One, I will say this and then let's move on. And that is that these are not academic problems. These are actual uh, issues that have real world ramifications. And there is no more example that illustrates that better than what happened at Cosmic Pizza. When that gunman showed up convinced that there was a child sex ring going on in the basement of this pizza parlor in Washington, DC. And he, in his own mind, was well-intentioned. He thought children were being harmed because of the way that he had been radicalized online. 
And and what you just said there shows how we should approach this like it's empathetic, and that's how Kevin Ruse approaches yeah. it in this in this uh, series. And it also is that that YouTube video I referenced, and and I'll send you the link because you should see this this um, this woman who everyone on online was calling crazy and look at her and haha what a joke she is for railing at this um uh, this city council um kevin put that up and said these issues the the this is very mainstream it's not fringe literally a hundred million people could feel like he i don't mm. forget what his words were but like what she is saying is not fringe and that's the problem, right? What she is saying is actually mainstream, just like we're talking about. Mm. What is mainstream? And the solution, and the, which is, which is what Kevin did such a good job of, of portraying. The solution is that we have to understand what's going on with these people that would lead to this kind of uh, th- this kind of wrongheaded thinking, right? Like this is a person who was vulnerable for these reasons, and until we address the situation that creates that vulnerability, this is only going to get worse. Well, I think that's a good way to kind of segue into um, how to feed the soul in these trying times. (laughs) Yes. And if it's not going to be yoga and meditation, Rich, I think it should be Queer Eye. It should be. <laughs> That's where our good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we 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 have a couple choices here. We have Queer Eye and we have Kanye. Let's go to uh-huh. Queer Eye first. These are right. our, these are our chances for redemption here. So we were joking recently. Uh, I think I I was with you and I just brought it up. That you've been you've been well, watching it with basically, the family, right? yeah. So throughout quarantine, we have all our kids home. We've been having family dinners. There's a lot that's been really nice about it. And one of the things that we've done, not every night, but like a couple nights a week, like after dinner, we're like, all right, what do you want to watch? And for some reason, we started watching Queer Eye. Mm. My relationship with Queer Eye dates back to Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, like the original cast all the way back the OG. then. And I had ne- I'm late to the party here because I've never seen this television show. <laughs> I think maybe I had a vague <laughs> notion that they had rebooted it and it existed, but I'd never watched an episode. He never watched it. Season five got released. Yes. Still had never so it's seen been around one. for five years. I've never seen it. So this is like my big, like, here's what everyone should watch. Everyone's like, yeah, I know. I've been watching that all along. Yeah. But I was really moved yeah, by moving. this program. Like from the first episode that I watched, I'm like, okay, they're going to, it's a makeover show. These, these do like, who are these guys? Like they're going to come and they're going to make these, these people over without fail. Every episode of this show that I've watched has been like an emotional roller coaster. Right. It's so inspiring. Yes. I'm really touched by what these five guys, uh, the way in which these five guys are able to connect with so many different varieties of humanity. And more than that, the way in which they're doing it. I think it's really beautiful. And so over the course of the quarantine, we've watched the entire five seasons. I've missed a few nights. Um, you mentioned one episode to me that's one of your favorites. I don't think yeah. I've seen it yet. The, but bar- the barbecue ladies. I love this City. show. Oh, it's man. incredible. I- I've been on it since it started. <laughs> you know, like, so Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, for those who have not seen the original, it was really all about getting straight guys to look better and groom better mm-hmm. and live better. And it was that's what it was about. And they were mostly young. It was an MTV show, I think. I think so, yeah. And At least so originally. It was for young people. This, they, not only do they choose a diverse cast of people who are multi-talented and extremely good on television, and it's an hour long, but it's kind of 
adds a home improvement element that was like it flexes out the home improvement. Hat tip to right. Bobby. It also Bobby's uh, a genius. Bobby's by the genius. way, what he's able to do in five days in yes. these people's homes yes. is unbelievable. And then we have <laughs> I, this is my hat tip to to Tan France. Yeah. I'm wearing my Tan France approved shirt. Oh, it I looks think good. Approved. I think he would approve. And he would approve your pop yeah. color too. I think. Hey, listen, I started wearing a jacket on this podcast <laughs> when I started watching Queer Eye. So there you go. But they also chose like it's not just men. You know, it's it's women. It's uh, it's queer people. It's people who are who are like even um, on the uh, gender spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's real hard cases, like kind of people that you wouldn't expect right. uh, this group of gay men to go into and, and help. And, and, and it's, it's- Yeah, there was a whole season in the South in Georgia, in Georgia where they're interacting with all kinds of people who, for the most part, a lot of them, I think, really had no meaningful relationships with any gay people in their lives yeah. ever before. Yeah. And the, the compassion and the patience and the fun that they bring into these people's lives is, I, I mean, I just, I think it's- And the love, yeah. the self-love. Right. And, and just- Well, that's the other huge difference between that original version and this one is the self-help empowerment angle that Karamo brings. And they say he's like Karamo culture. He's not culture. This guy is like literally helping these people see their lives with more clarity, identifying the, the, the obstacles that they're facing or what's hamstringing them and trying to help them find a better path forward. I mean, culture came from the original. I think like one person's job was to teach them how to eat properly and like to go dancing and these mm. kinds of things. And so they, that's what they tagged Karamo with. But Karamo is a guy who was, I think, a licensed clinical social worker, yeah, like a therapist I think, I think in he's a previous a, I think life. he's a psychotherapist. Yeah, and he is, I mean, he will just cut right to the core every time. Right. Yeah, he's, I gotta your, get that, he's your guy, right? I gotta he's get your that, favorite? I got to get that guy on the podcast. I know he has his own podcast on Luminary. Uh, he did, I think Russell Brand had Karamo on his show. I'm going to check that out. I got to listen to that. Um, yeah, I, I got it. I mean, that's got to happen. Karamo has got to get on the show. And what about JVN? Well, JVN, I mean, has there ever, it, I mean, what do you even say? I mean, the guy is like, I don't know what they're paying that guy, but they should like triple it. I mean, he's the most fabulous, entertaining, unique human being you're ever going to see on television. Yeah, he's beautiful. He 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 played Carnegie Hall, by the way. Did he? Yeah, you didn't know that. See, he I don't like, know any. I don't know he, anything. He about did this. like a whole like comedy variety show with gymnastics, and he played Carnegie Hall. Like, I saw him do the splits. Did you see him? Well, at, I knew that he was like a cheerleader in his high school. Did you go? Did big, you watch the episode where he went back to his high school and and queer eyed like the woman who was in charge of all? I those started programs? watching it, and then I had to Changed work, and life. I missed it. So that's another one oh, that I have to go back that. and watch the whole part. Oh my of. god, yeah. that's like JVN. Yeah, that's the one you got I mean, see. that guy is unbelievable. And how he connects with people, like with his childlike nature, you know, it's so warm and inviting. Yeah. Those guys are doing more for gay rights. You know, than, I mean, the advocacy that's kind of behind, like it's, it's not explicit, it's sort of just there in the way that they carry themselves, I think is really powerful. They're just, yeah, beautiful human beings, smart on top of it together mm-hmm. and and uh, and empathetic, right? Like they're looking for the places of no matter connection. who it is. They're yeah, they're always they're not they're not spending any time on the differences or the division. They're going right towards what they can connect with. Like, yeah. what are the similarities? Where's the what is the way in with this person? How can I relate to them? Yeah. 
It's cool. It's cool so I'm five, I'm five years late to this party. But you're in the party. But if anybody's listening to this or watching this and they're, they're like me, <laughs> I have been enjoying this show. And I will show and tell for. Here's the, the, the final part of the show and tell, which is like the cherry on top of this Sunday, is I'm scrolling through Twitter the other day and Brene Brown posted this thing that I thought was so great. I love Brene Brown. She's yeah. another person I, I really want to get on the show. I just yeah. think she's magnificent. Apparently, she was hiking in the Texas Hill Country. Right. I think she lives in Houston, right? So, yeah, she, but the Hill Country is more around Austin. It is around Austin. But it sounded like she was out in the middle of nowhere. But it's all still Eastern Texas, right? Austin and I Houston, so. they're close. Yeah. Yeah. She's out hiking by herself in the middle of nowhere. And she stumbles upon somebody sitting under a cedar tree. And it turns out it's JVN. <laughs> She's like, and they both say, apparently, according to her tweet, they both say, oh my God, is it you? Because I guess they were supposed to do an event together. Yes, yes. So I don't know, just, it warms my heart to think those two discovered each other on a trail and had a hike together. That's great. Isn't it's radical great? radical love. And JDN is a, is a bit of a radical. I like his yeah. like politics. He, uh, I don't know much about his politics. He had a, yeah, he's, he's all about, he's all he? about the right thing. Um, it just puts a smile on my face that those two would be out together. And I think we need a little bit of good news amidst all the we heaviness do. right now. We do, and that's now. what it's all about. There's, there was, um, that was kind of your win of the week, right? We're, we're doing this. That was my of, win of the week. That was your win Brene, of the week. The Brene Brown JVN Union, that's a win. That is a win. Yeah. Do yeah. you have a win? Um, yeah. My win was was the Argentinian who wanted to get back to his 90-year-old dad um, and couldn't fly home because he was stuck in Portugal and there were no flights back into Buenos Aires. And he had a 29-foot boat and he decided to sail home for his dad's birthday and was at sea for 89 days. He tried to uh, resupply in Cape Verde, the islands off of uh, you know West Africa, mm -hmm. um, and they wouldn't take them because you know, they're a small island nation and they, they were careful about the virus. And he sailed across the Atlantic all the way down to uh, Mar del Plata, which is this incredible fishing city in um, Argentina. And he sailed all the way home to see his dad. He didn't make his birthday, but he, uh, he got there. And a great story. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what I would do for my dad. <laughs> Well, that is, I mean, wow. That hit home you know. because my dad has been having some health issues yeah. been in and out of the hospital. So for me, it's like to see that and to, and he had, you know, the, the, the sailor, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm spaced on his name, but we'll put the link to the story in the show notes. Right. Yeah. So people can sure. see and get, get it. And it was a New York Times story. Yeah. Right? New York Times story. Yeah. And he, um, you know, just to 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 see his own personal growth on that. He was by himself for that entire time. He mm -hmm. like didn't even fish. He couldn't kill anything. He still ate his like canned tuna, but like he had, he's like, he's not going to fish anymore. He just had this, wow. he went through his own, you know, crucible. So um, how did he, if he wasn't able to resupply, he had, how did he, he do had it? stored, I mean, he, obviously boats like that will have a desalinator. Mm. And then he he had stored a bunch of canned tuna. He was mostly that subsisting was off was canned tuna wow. and whatever else he brought along. And mm. no gas because he couldn't get gas at Cape Verde. So he was just like 
dealing Winging with the doldrums it. and trying yeah. to find the wind and trying to stay safe and <sighs> amazing. Good deal. Yeah. Well, I feel better. That's good. <laughs> yeah, good. Should we a- answer some listener emails? Uh, well, let's take a quick break. All right. And then we'll come back and do a little listener email. Let's do it. And we're back. What do you got for me, Adam? Okay. Before we get into listener email, I have my own my, – I'm a listener. Yeah. I have my own question. <laughs> okay. Because um, I know you went to the Sunday service. Some, is it called Sunday service? Sunday – Kanye's thing. Yeah, Kanye's thing. And yeah. I never really asked you about it. But now since Kanye is – Running, I guess is running he running for? for pre- is he? <laughs> yes, he's running for it's president. Un- you never know. Like, what is this real? Is he running for president? Is this a stunt? Right? Does he just have a record? Apparently, that to drop? him and Elon Musk were together the other day, and Elon's on board with this. Yes. Who knows? Vice what's going President on. Elon. I don't know. Right. Can he be Vice President? Maybe Secretary of State. Like Henry Kissinger had to be like Secretary of State or something because he wasn't born here. I'm telling you, we live in a simulation. This is this, it's getting it, crazier. And it's crazier becoming every what's, day. what it's becoming. The Watchmen. Yeah. Um, only if Kanye wins will we be at the Watchmen. <sighs> um, but you know, it's so just a little background. We don't know if he's running because in order to run, you have to get signatures and get on the ballot in different states. Blah blah blah. Who cares about that? Part? And he's already still- <laughs> he's already not he's already missed the deadline. But there's more there's there's more deadlines coming. Let's just take a beat on that until we get a sense of what's actually real. Yeah, let's do that. But, but tell us your story about going to the service because what is he? Is he a pop star, a spiritual leader? What, what is Kanye what, what right is Guru, I think Kanye Guru defies Kanye? definition, doesn't he? He does. He's a, he's a, he's, you know, he's, he's basically a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody who has, who wields more cultural influence than Kanye West? I don't know. Beyonce, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Not not very many people. I mean, it's unbelievable the influence that that guy has had, not just on music, but on culture, fashion, a whole variety yeah. of subject matters. Maybe his wife. Too. And he, he, he lives not too far from me. And I remember when he first started doing the Sunday service thing, and I thought, that's sort of cool. Like, wow, like he's doing, I thought it was like in his backyard or something like that. Right. And I was out running on a trail near my house um, not long after I heard about that for the first time. And I started to hear gospel music. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is this is where it's ha- It's like, it's happening in, the, it was a Sunday morning and I ran, they, they, they had like all kinds of security. You couldn't get too close to it, but I could see from a distance like, oh, that is the thing. And there were all these people there. And I remember thinking, I got to figure out how to get in on this. Like, I want to be able, I want to get invited. I want to see, I want to witness this experience. Right. Because this is really interesting and unique. And everyone's dressed in white, right? right? Everyone's wearing white. They're all, there's there's music happening. It didn't look like it, there were that many people in attendance, probably just his friends and his family. And I just remember thinking, not only am I, do I want to figure out how to be invited to this to see it? I'm going to, this is going to happen. Like yeah. I just, it was a weird, there's no re, I don't know Kanye. Like I, right. I have no in or anything like that. I just thought somehow that's going to happen. And it did happen. And the way that it happened is that our friend Mel Nahas, um, I, I was like out running and I posted an Instagram story and I was like, hey, you can hear the music. Like, this is my trail. Like you could kind of, I just shared it. And she saw that and, and, texted me and she's like, where is that exactly? Like, I want to know exactly where that's happening. And I I just 
like dropped a pin on a map and I sent it to her. She's like, I'm going to have my birthday party on that little piece, that little mound of dirt out on that trail. I was like, good luck figuring out how to make that happen. Like, how do you even get a permit? Like, who do you even right. call? And she's right. like, don't worry about it. Like she produces all her retreats. She knows she, she's amazing. Like she knows how to figure this stuff out. And sure enough, she knew a park ranger and sorted it out and got the permission to be able to host like an evening dinner party, like out in the middle of this field on amazing. this, in the, on this state owned nature preserve, basically. So we go to this dinner and there's, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 people there and it's catered. It's beautiful. The sun's setting. It's a, a, a lovely evening and we're enjoying ourselves. And we're, of course, all talking about like, this is actually where this Sunday service thing is going on. You know, how wild is that? And like, I wonder what he's going to do with it. And we're all just, it's the topic of conversation naturally. And in the distance, I see... Um, a guy walking up with two little kids, like way out, you could too far away to identify, but dark complected. And I remember joking to, to Julian Mel, I was like, oh, there's Kanye. He's going to come over and see how we're doing. Come on. <laughs> and as he got nearer and nearer, I was like, that actually kind of looks like Kanye. And, and then he just walked right up to our group. And I was like, oh my God, that's Kanye West. He's like, coming to your birthday party, Mel. <laughs> like, how about that? So- I was like, come on, we got to go over and talk to him. He was on the other side of the, like the, where the dinner was happening. So Julie and I walk over and he's talking, he starts talking to Mel and he's with his daughter and his daughter's friend. And they had just walked up. He lives nearby and he, he just walked up to his, his, he had put these boulders around the perimeter of it and his kids wanted to play. Or his okay. daughter wanted to play on that. So he just came up for no reason, just by himself. And he's like, what's going on here? And we explained to him and, and it was wild. Like he was like, oh, that's cool. Like he wanted to know who we were. He was very genuine, grounded, present, gracious, kind. Like it was a very cool experience that to just cool. talk to him. Um, and that was that. And then he, oh, and then we were, and we kind of, I was like, all right, we got to ask if we can come to the thing, right? So got <laughs> like drop it in. He's like, here's the number of, you know, my assistant or whatever, like she'll hook it up. And then sure enough, like we were able to go the following Sunday. So Julie and I and Mel went to the thing and it was wild. You know, it was- What what happens? Does he so start with a sermon or is you, it mostly you, musical? You drive up, you, you would drive up to this, like sort of staging parking lot that was still maybe a half mile away from the actual site. And they have all kinds of people in all the white, you know, and then they're like this way and they're kind of guiding you in what direction to go. And and then you just congregate in a circle around this. They, he had built up this mound like in the middle where the choir would went up there, all the musicians where they were performing. And there were probably, I don't know, maybe less than a hundred people in hmm. attendance to watch. Hmm. And it had really nothing to do with Kanye. He didn't make himself really a part, he was participating, but it wasn't like the Kanye show. It was all about this choir and these musicians. Is he, and it was he, cool. put, he put the music together though, right? I'm sure he came up with, you know, the whole program. Yeah. But it wasn't like, oh, he's gonna get on the mic and he's gonna talk. Like it was none of that. Like he was very much in the background he of didn't the whole speak. thing. No, no, no. Nobody really speak. There was a choir director and there was very little talking. It was really just music. So it's like the old uh, House of Blues, like Sunday brunch with gospel, but without the 
the uh, I, I don't know. I never food. went to that, so I don't know what that what that's food. like. And it went on for maybe yeah. an hour, an hour and a half, and it was cool. And that's that, awesome. That was it. It was really lovely. Great music. And it was wild. Like I was like, oh, I think that's Brad Pitt over there. No way. Like, Come on. Uh, there were definitely some interesting <laughs> people there, you know. But and that was it. Like then, I mean, I don't know. So. What, another thing that was interesting about that is that then I kind of shared a couple of pictures on Instagram about how much I enjoyed that. And, you know, people were, there were a lot of people that gave me shit for that. Because he's, yeah, he's polarizing also. Yeah, he's polarizing. He's polar, you know, he had worn the, the, the MAGA hat and the whole thing. Right. And Before like, that, he'd worn the MAGA hat? I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. And I was just there to experience this creative expression that I thought was kind of an amazing thing. That seems to be what's most it. important to him is like, right? Creative freedom and creative well, expression. Well, I think, I think there is a courage and a fearlessness in his creative expression because he's, he's not, he's constantly iterating, right? right? He's never stuck in any particular lane. And the minute you try to define him, he pivots and does something completely different. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. In, you know, and it, and it begins with, the the way in which he created his music and how that juxtaposed juxtaposing that against current trends in hip hop at the time like he's always been an innovator mm-hmm. did you see the was it GQ they did a spread on his like Montana ranch and like all no. these plans that he has to uh, these architectural plans for what he wants to do with this property it's like it's no. it's wild why does every rich guy have a Montana ranch I don't, I don't know you don't hear don't of like know. women with or maybe Montana it's Wyoming I don't, I'm, like I'm Reese Witherspoon sure. doesn't have yeah. a Montana ranch it's always guys with their Montana yeah. ranch I guess <laughs> Reese Witherspoon's <laughs> Montana ranch I haven't heard of that yet <laughs> she'll have a she probably has a ranch somewhere. all right so that's the big Kanye story make, um, it, make of it what you will I like the Kanye story um I hope he's not running for president personally I don't yeah. think that would be good for our our, I don't, I don't our think man so Joe. Um, all right, let's get into John Brown's question. It's interesting because it gets to kind of stuff that we were talking about just in terms of personal paralysis and, and mm. satisfaction or dissatisfaction. I'm 44 with a wife and three kids, and I want so badly to take a bold step into the unknown. What advice would you give me if I cornered you at a coffee shop one morning? Hey, John, I'm sympathetic to that question, mm. although I have very few facts to go on here in order to answer this. I think the first thing I would say is why a bold step? Like Mm. what's going on in your life right now where you feel compelled to not just make a change, but make a bold change. And I think you need to answer that for yourself first, right? Like what is, what's the discontent or the, um, the, uh, I don't know, what would it call, what would you call it? Like the, um, the lack of groundedness that 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 gives you that kind of anxiousness. Yeah, that, it sounds step, like a, why, intense dissatisfaction. Right, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, that's what I see in that. Like, yeah. why does it have to be bold? So understanding that, I think it's the first step to trying to figure out what to do next. Um, you have three kids, you have a wife, you're 44. I don't know what your occupation is. I don't know what your satisfaction with your occupation is. I don't know if this bold step that you want to make is professional or personal. So that makes it challenging to answer this. But I think I would I would presume you're meaning professional. When you have three kids and a wife, um, I would caution you from being too bold. I think that it's romantic 
this idea of quitting your job and, you know, sailing to Argentina with cans of tuna right. <laughs> in your boat or something like I that. I don't think he had a but, job. I know, but <laughs> I'm just saying like, if you're feeling stuck, like the, you you can romanticize these other paths for yourself yeah. without fully thinking them through. Yeah. So short of a bold step, my suggestion to you would be, what can you do right now that doesn't require you to burn your life down to the ground, mm. right? Like whether it's a side hustle or just finding something that brings you happiness that you can lend greater expression uh, to your daily life would be the place to start. Just because you're, you have something in your life that's not functioning properly doesn't mean that you have to cast aside everything else and, and, and do something super drastic. Yeah. You know, there is a pragmatism to all of this because those bold steps, although sexy, have ramifications for the other people in your life. And of course you have to think all of that through. Um, so the advice that I would give you if you cornered me in a coffee shop would first be a bunch of questions that I would need answered <laughs> in order to, to, to give you that advice. But I think it begins with being intentional about how you're spending your time on a daily basis mm -hmm. and having the mindfulness to carve out sections of your day every single day that are just for you, where you can invest in that one thing, that one activity, that one practice that can bring you a little bit more joy and also perhaps be a stepping stone towards that bold step that you can take at a later time. Love it. And I think that mindfulness thing that you're referencing it kind of gets us into the next question. The question was from John Pierce, tell us about some of your mentors, but you hadn't really, um, we don't want to go there. So I think a, a better question is what about, you talk about mindfulness a lot. So I, my question for you kind of piggybacked off John's question would be kind of, can you describe your mindfulness practice and, and how did you get into it? Was there a spiritual mentor or someone that, that kind of guided you into mindfulness? Hmm. Well, I would start by saying that my mindfulness practice is far from perfect. And I say that not only as a reminder to myself that I can improve tremendously on what I'm currently doing, but also because I think people think of mindfulness practices as some sort of standard that's hard to live up to. Hmm. Um, we quantify it and then say, it has to look like this. And if you're not doing this, then you're falling short. And when people feel like they can't do that or they fall off a program, then they abandon the practice altogether. The first thing I would do is define what does mindfulness practice mean? It can be formal meditation, but mindfulness is broader than that in the sense that it's something that we can be doing at all times. Like how can I be more mindful in this moment so that I can impart the best piece of advice that I'm capable of giving? Well, it means that I have to be present. It means that I have to ground myself and take a breath and calm my disposition enough so that what I'm expressing is done with clarity and purpose. Hmm. So we could be in a mindfulness practice right now. Hmm. Mindfulness does not necessitate formal meditation per se, but mindfulness is certainly a byproduct of a formal meditation practice. So my mindfulness practice involves a combination 
of formality and informality. I do have a formal meditation practice that I do every morning for 20 minutes. I shouldn't say every morning because it's not every morning. Right. I'm catching myself in that. Um, but the goal is every morning. The goal is every morning. And I, don't, and I fall short of that all the time. So the key with that is if you miss a day, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but just to start again the next day or that minutes, afternoon no or whenever you have it, or if you have five minutes or if you have two minutes yeah. or if you have time for one inhale and one exhale, mm. that can be a mindfulness practice. Then it's about a constant process of reminding myself throughout the day to be more present in whatever it is that I'm doing. Left to my own devices, I'm running all kinds of scenarios. Like everybody else, I'm busy. I'm running all kinds of scenarios. Oh, I should have said that. Why didn't I call that guy back? I got to do that thing. That person let me down. I owe that person a phone call. This guy was supposed to get back to me and he didn't. You know the drill, right? Yeah. So how can I just let go of that and be present? And often that's with paying attention to my breath and also just that gentle reminder like, oh, I'm doing that thing. Let's come back to now. Let's come back to now. Let's come back to now. You'd think after a while, you wouldn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Maybe that's true for you, not for me. But I will say, the more rigorous I am in my daily formal meditation practice, the easier it is to be mindful throughout the day. Mm. The half-life of that meditation practice is longer. And conversely, the half-life of my varying emotional states is shorter. Hmm. So if I get angry, I can get back to baseline more quickly. If I'm frustrated, a quick reminder, and I'm back to baseline. Hmm. And I think that's the real flex that you get when you build that muscle. It's not that you, you become some Buddha-like individual. It's that you're more self-aware of when your emotions are running you rather than the other way around. And you developed a facility to resume a state of equanimity. Hmm. You asked who the mentors are for this. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've sat with gurus and I've spent time on meditation apps. So there isn't one person that I can speak to. And I think it's important to not overcomplicate these things. If all you're doing is sitting down for five minutes and you're paying attention to your breath and you're inhaling and exhaling, that's really all you need to know. You can go on your own journey to learn more about all of these specific techniques and find what resonates for you, but I'm reticent to like say, this is the mentor, or this is the person that you should follow. I so think that's a like very individual The traditions thing. vary, there's some- Yeah, of course it, the traditions vary. Yeah, d depending, mm -hmm. but do you, do you, is it a silent meditation for you? Or do you yeah. use mantra at all? No, I don't. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trained in TM, so I don't have a mantra. It's a silent breath practice. Um, and then I would say, in addition to that, training is an active meditation for me. Yeah. So if I'm out on the trail, if I'm riding my bike, that's a mindfulness practice and what I would call an active meditation. But it's important to point out that that is not a formal meditation no. practice. And I think there's a lot of confusion there. A lot of people think, well, I don't sit down in lotus position and meditate. And I'm not saying anybody has to sit in lotus position. Um, but going out for a run, even if you're not wearing headphones, is not the same as a formal meditation practice. Those, it has value, 
but it's a qualitatively different experience. And that's something that I had to learn because I used to think that I didn't need a formal practice because I go and spend all this time alone, out in nature, that's good enough. But I can tell you from my own experience that the difference in how I feel and how I behave and how I interact with other people and the vicissitudes of my emotional state um, are much better when I'm engaged in that formal meditation practice. The active meditation aspect of it is a is a sort of cousin that adds additional benefit, but not at the expense of the more formal practice. So you just pop out of the tent on the roof and just fold right into the lotus position and go? I make some coffee or I make a tea and then I and then I do it. Um, no yoga first. No, no, no. I try to I try to do the meditation first first thing before anything because also because if I don't do it right then, it becomes less and less likely that it's going to happen. So it's got to be the first thing. Okay. Yeah, and then I will journal a little bit. Mm. I do morning pages from the artist way. Okay. And then I either go out and train or I use the time for creative pursuits like this book right now. So I'm, I'm actually not training very much at all because I'm on such a crazy deadline. When do you watch your QAnon um, videos? <laughs> yeah. Is that like after lunch? <laughs> That's after lunch. <laughs> yes. Because I go, my yeah. first thing. Right. I wake when up you're, and dive right in. When you're maximally receptive <laughs> yeah, to I, these I, ideas. I, mean, I have research to do. So <laughs> I got to carve out like seven to 10 hours. You on have this done stuff. your research, my friend. <laughs> um, Lori Marbus, who is the one person you have yet to interview that is at the top of your list? And I guess we've already said Karamo and Brene Brown, so maybe Got somebody it. Well, else. yeah, those are two that I would love yeah. to get. It's funny. I, I don't have like some crazy list like that. Um, I mean, I'd love to get Eckhart Tolle on. He would be great. Who wouldn't want The Rock on? I mean, come I mean, on. Come on, right? Like, so we can talk about people like that. But- it's similar to people always ask me like who you know what's your 5 year plan or what's the goal what's the big thing you're working? it's like I don't I've just never been wired like that mm. I'm I'm really much more in the moment like I'm just kind of feeling what's next so my line of vision isn't lasered on or rooted in like I have to get this person like I I have a spreadsheet open where I have I just put names on as they pop into my head or somebody like oh that would be cool so I don't forget but it's not like I'm driving towards any one particular person. I probably should have an answer to that question, but I don't. Nobody. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. We'll see who shows up. I'm trusting in the universe, Adam, to deliver me the best people. Ah, <laughs> but we don't know about that algorithm. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sure. What about, about that. the internal algorithm in my head <laughs> yes. that's deciding? If who you comes cultivate on. the algorithm within, it shall mm. be delivered. Um, Anna Nicole. Oh, Anna Nicole. Um, how to find your own purpose. I've been living a very comfortable life up to now, but have really lost motivation to work or take care of responsibilities. Everything is hard because I'm dragging my feet and waiting to the last minute to complete. How does one find their groove again or a sense of purpose when they don't even know what they want? I know it's vague, but it's how it rolls around in my head. I think this one is, the reason I put this in the list is because I know a lot of people are struggling with quarantine. Mm -hmm. I know you've where you've talked about even your own family and, and issues that uh, with quarantine, just like how it's challenging for so mm. many people. So um, I think that that would be a good one to kind of in context of, of the moment we're in now. Well, I think Anna's question is something that everybody can relate to on yeah. some level, right? Yeah. We're all looking for a greater purpose in our lives and we're all 
evaluating how we're living on a day-to-day basis against some standard imagined or otherwise of what our life could look like. Mm. So it's easy to say, my life's not working. I should have this. Why am I not super excited when I wake up in the morning? When I read this question, I think what's instructive is, first of all, the fact that she says she's living a very comfortable life, right? So there's almost like some guilt, like my life's been comfortable, so I shouldn't complain, right? Like I shouldn't, I should just be happy with what I have. Right. But at the same time, if you're dragging your feet, if you're procrastinating, there's something that's perhaps a little bit out of function at the moment. So the first question I would ask is, what isn't working? Like perhaps do an inventory of what's suboptimal mm. and try to set aside that guilt. Like you feel like, oh, I'm, it's indulgent for me because I live a comfortable life to make a list of things that aren't working because I'm lucky and great. I'm grateful to have the job that I have or the <clears throat> apartment that I live in or whatever it is. But if you can be rigorous and objective in that inventory of what's not working optimally, I think that's a starting place. And then the elusive, ever elusive question of like, how do you find purpose? How do you You get it back? How do you, or if you've lost it, how do you get it back? And I wish I could give you a pithy answer of here's how you do it. It's very difficult, right? This is an individual journey that's gonna look different for everybody. But I think fundamentally for everybody, it begins with an inside job. Like Mm. this is an internal search, right? If you don't know what your purpose is, I can't tell you what your purpose is. You have to discover that for yourself. And that journey of self-discovery requires you to look inward, also in a rigorous and objective way, to try to figure out what what, what it is about who you are that A, makes you uniquely you, and B, um, that you feel inspired to uniquely express. Mm. And the only way of answering that question or unlocking it is to not only ask yourself those questions, but to begin experimenting, right? Like try these different things. What what brings you joy? Try to remember that thing when you were a kid that you used to like to do, not because somebody told you to do it, but because you had a natural inclination towards it. As we grow older, we tend to let go of those things or we shift our our perspective on them and decide that they are the purview of a young person. And as a responsible adult, it's no longer okay for you to engage in those things. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can connect with that inner child, I think, and try to remember what some of those behaviors and activities are and build those back into your life, I think is a good means of connecting with yourself that might lead you to some discoveries around purpose. And I also think that um, this can be indulgent. So rather than flogging yourself, like what is my purpose and I need a purpose, maybe just go help somebody else out. You know, the more that you can get out of your own way and your own self-obsession, and just make yourself available to somebody who has less than you. And it doesn't mean that you have to go volunteer at a soup kitchen, although that, that's perfectly fine. It could be calling up a friend that you haven't talked to in a long time or somebody that you know is having a hard time and just letting them know that you're 
available to them. And I think when you build that into a habit where being of service to other people in a selfless way is a reflex rather than a burden or an obligation, that in my experience and what I've seen with other people is probably the best way to set you on a trajectory that's going to connect you with some kind of purpose in your life. I, love I know for myself, when I'm of service to other people, my problems don't matter or they get smaller. And the truth is when you're, the more selfless you are, first of all, the happier, the happier you are. It's very gratifying when you're helping other people. Mm -hmm. Like it, it gives your life meaning. So mm -hmm. if, when I say, how do I find purpose? What I hear is like, my, my life doesn't feel like it has meaning. Well, right. everybody can build more meaning into their life by helping other people. Right. Your life immediately becomes more meaningful when you're of service to others. How do you get your groove back? Be of service to others. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. Yeah. And experimenting, you can even do on a daily basis. You can't find your purpose maybe your purpose with a capital P on a daily basis. But like, I remember I was in New York with my friend, Anthony Demby a long time ago. And he, I woke up, I was staying with him and he's like, what's your purpose today? Or what's your intention today? Mm. And, uh, and I, I never do that. You know, I don't wake <laughs> up with a specific intention and I felt right. kind of like simultaneously like, wow, what am I doing wrong? And then also, okay. Um, I decided connection, mm. you know, connection, connect, connect. Mm. um, and later that day, I was on this subway that got stopped in the middle of like the track for 25 minutes and people were losing their minds because they were busy or whatever. And this guy next to me was like cursing and freaking out. And um, I, instead of like just le like getting up and leaving, I started to talk to him uh -huh. because that was an intention. And that's like what you were saying with experimenting. You can start that easy. If you don't know where to volunteer just yet or who to be of service to, right. you can wake up and give yourself a purpose every morning. What's today's purpose? Yeah, and I'm it can be, yeah. what I love about that story yeah. is if you decided that day your intention was was connection and you're stuck on that subway, that just means to engage that dude who's having a hard That's time it. on the subway That's and it. maybe make his day a little bit better. That's it, yeah, you know just, what I mean? just talked with him and talked through his problem and that's yeah. what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was this weird, like six foot five skinhead that was making like figure eights in the hall, like uh -huh. stomping in his combat boots that you didn't want to look at. <laughs> that was scary, that yeah. guy. All right, man. <laughs> New York City. Um, question five Brian Tolander asks What's up, Brian? Here's a subject that may be at the heart of the great divide we are seeing getting wider in America cognitive dissonance. Two people looking at the same event and walking away with extremely opposite opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, this relates directly to what we've already been talking about. Yeah. Um, listen to rabbit hole, and it basically goes down a rabbit hole of how we've arrived at this place. I think there's a broader conversation about confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance, you know, and how the brain works. Um, it is interesting that that you know two different people could watch the same news program and walk away with completely different ideas about it. And then I think the, the, the larger problem is how entrenched we become mm -hmm. in those ideas, such that when we're presented with a counterfactual narrative, no matter how compelling that narrative, it, it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter. It's not gonna move the needle in terms of how that person is seeing the world, whether it's the Trump voter who can't be talked out of voting for Trump or, the 
super liberal person who you know sees the world in a specific way, the the, the idea that you're going to change these people's minds, I think, is you know we all know how difficult that is, and and what is that about, right? Like, and I think it has a lot to do with. Again, to bring it back to the beginning of this conversation, disenfranchisement and disempowerment. As human beings, we're hardwired to want to be part of a community, of a tribe. And we align ourselves with various teams, whether it's the Philadelphia Eagles or, you know, the the Los Angeles Lakers. Like, look at sports and how we tribalize that. Politics are a close cousin of that. And I think as 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 um, swaths of the population become progressively more disenfranchised, um, there's a sense of lack of control. And I think there's an agency that develops when somebody can latch on to a certain tribe and craft an identity around that, mm-hmm. right? This is who I am. This is my identity. And, and you get strength from that no matter who you are. Like if you're in the Democratic Party, this is who I am. This is what we stand for. This is our values. And I'm going to defend my my membership status in this tribe against everything else, no matter what facts that I'm presented with. So then the question becomes, how did we become so susceptible to these silos, these tribes, and why do we cling to them so strongly? Hmm. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that the um, connections that we have in our own communities have been fractured. And this is taking the place of that, whether it's the church or the 4-H club or whatever it is that in the 1950s through the 70s, people used to do within their respective neighborhoods, a lot of that has gone away and we've become suburbanized and you know, cul-de-sacized yeah. to such an extent Digitized. that we no longer, yeah, we no longer have those connections. That fabric that weds us to our local communities doesn't quite exist in the way that it used to. So, as human beings, we're finding other ways of doing that. So we are doing it digitally, and and maybe because we don't have those in-person tactile bonds. That's why we're holding on so tightly to the identities that we fabricate that are based on ideologies rather than proximity. Mm-hmm. It's uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, what you're talking, what we're talking about is looking at something. Everyone's watching watching the same thing and coming away with different opinions. But the fact is, we're not watching the same thing, right? So that's mm-hmm. also part of it. That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're watching different angles of the same thing. Yeah. And um well there is no there is no unified source of quote unquote truth anymore. Yeah, yeah. We're all self-selecting our information silos. We're all on different diets basically. Yeah. Also I think perception of disenfranchisement is interesting because you know a lot of it is a perception thing. You know like wh- where you perceive yourself in the greater whole. And um, when you, there's two ways of looking at feeling small in this big world. Uh, To me, the healthy view is I'm a small fragment of this great web and I'm connected to all of it. 
um, and it's all part of me and I'm part of it. And there's a, there's a sense of responsibility that comes with that. And there's a sense of, you know, humility that comes with that mm. being the small thing, speck in this, you know, it's one pixel yeah. in this, in this, in this tapestry or this picture. Um, you're just a couple zeros and ones. Yeah, that's in it. In the matrix, right? we're just part of the uh, what, the great algorithm. That, that green stream of <laughs> yes, like characters yes. that's flowing down <laughs> the Shangri-La <laughs> algorithm. Yeah. Um, but then the negative view of that is, why do I feel so small? And these assholes are such big shots, you know. Mm. And like, what is disenfranchisement? Like, if you have a place to live and some food on your plate and you're comfortable and you're warm or whatever, like. Like how disenfranchised should you actually feel? So it's like there's all these moving parts to the modern world now, and it, there's it's always been this way. You know, we watched American Beauty the other night because um, we, we we had to go back to the DVDs because our our cable company fumbled the ball <laughs> right. on our move, and so we were watching that. And there's a great scene where the uh, where um, what's the guy video? Uh, you know, the the, the younger uh, Wes. Uh, yeah. What's his real name? What's his name? I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, the classic scene of the- And he's, his dad is like reading the morning paper and he's like, what's going on, dad? And dad goes, this country's going straight to hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically always been that. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to remind right. our listeners and remind each other, this country's always been going straight to hell. Like I'm sure in the revolution, the day after the revolution of war ended, there was like someone complaining and, about it. And <laughs> every generation- is told that like oh it's always been this way every generation says that but and then they say yeah but this time it really is <laughs> yes this time well and right I now feel it like does appear so right now maybe it is we can't end on that note no but the point is is that there's always that kind of like this disenfranchisement is a point of view I I always uh, think of it that way like we're in charge of our emotional perspective. I mean, don't you think? I mean, yes. like, isn't that, isn't that what you, you're trying to, we try to kind of tell people and mm-hmm. tell them our kids and tell everybody is like that no one tells you, no one can tell you how you feel or how you're going to react to something. You have control over that. Yes, that agency resides within all of us. Yeah. And in a culture and a world where we feel like that, that our agency has been stripped from us, it's important to realize that there are still certain things that only you have control over. You can't control the insanity of the chaotic world. You can't control what other people are going to do. You can't control the news cycle. All you can control is your reaction to all of that and how you comport yourself. So it always goes back to mindfulness. The more mindful that you can be, the more equanimous you can carry yourself, the better equipped you are to manage whatever problems you encounter, whether they be related to disenfranchisement or your lack of sense of control over your life, always turn back inward. And as Guru Singh always says, less emotion, more devotion. I love that. Right? Like... Rather than getting all emotional about things that you can't control, check yourself. What are you devoted to? What are you cultivating inside of yourself that can lead to greater self-awareness, self-improvement? All you can control is yourself. 
the path forward is to be the best version of yourself so that you're equipped to handle all those other things that you cannot control. And the byproduct of that is you become a force of harmony in this world. And like dissonance, right. dissonance in music is a tool to be used um, to make people feel. And then it always wants to come back to harmony. Like mm. the piece of music always wants to come back. Dissonance always merges back. So that's a better note to end on because yes. it will if we if we cultivate that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I think we did it. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Again. Episode three of hype. Roll On. I like being your hype man. <laughs> it was good, man. Yeah. How do you feel? You feel good? I feel good. I like it when you read my resume, though. That that really makes oh, me feel good. Oh, I forgot good. to do that. No, no, you don't have top. to. Because my wife reads me my resume she every does. night. Yeah. I'll read it to you. Yeah, but sometimes I'll she reads record me it for you, other and then men's you resumes just... <laughs> that are a lot more impressive <laughs> if she's pissed. <laughs> Adam Skolnick, co-author of Can't Hurt Me, author of One Breath. One Breath. New York Times, yeah. contributing writer, environmentalist, activist, and now audio pontificator yeah, slash hype nice. man. Yeah, audio pontificator. <laughs> like that's that. like yeah. the podcast version uh -huh. of Talking Head. Right, audio pontificator. <laughs> awesome. Um, you can find Adam online. You could see his, his digital ones and zeros streaming yeah. across the matrix at Adam Skolnick on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. Thanks for listening and watching, everybody. Check the show notes. We're going to put links up to everything that we talked about today. You can find that on the specific episode page at richroll.com. And generally on the YouTube version, we put links up to stuff as well. If you want to contribute a question for us to consider answering on this show, you can do that on our Facebook group. Yep. Uh, which is the Rich Roll Podcast on Facebook. I'll put a link up to that as well on YouTube and the show notes. Um, also, if you join the Facebook group, you can also, uh, it would be great if you could contribute to that survey that we've put up there as well. Um, we should probably think about getting a voicemail option. Like a For Google, people? Like, That's yeah, a that way you could, then we could like play their... Audio ah, of like the that. question instead. Well, I am getting a landline. Can I make uh, you an assignment? Yes, I can do that. I don't think you need it. Like you get yeah. like Google Voice. These phone numbers exist. Like in, I'll, I'll figure that out. Internet. All right, I figure that, that out, and we'll we'll try to move forward. We'll put on that, that, and then I'll, we'll put up a new post for the questions, so we can have. Okay. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we yeah, can yeah. organize them better. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. So see you back here with another version of this in two weeks. Until then, be well. More devotion, less emotion. Right? Love it. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis, he's right over here. You can't see him for videoing today's show, doing all the short clips and creating all the social media stuff. Thanks, Blake. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics. Uh, Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK, also right over here. What's up, DK? DK. For advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler Trapper and Hari. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the love. See you back here in a couple days with another great episode. I love you. Peace. Plants. Namaste.